The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Exodus 2, 11-22. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, seeing no one. He struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them, and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, how is it that you've come home so soon? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and even drew water for us, and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave, them, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, hello, everybody. If we haven't met, my name is Russ Ramsey, and I am the pastor here at Christ Presbyterian Church's Cool Springs location, and it is great to be with you this morning. We are in this sermon series on the book of Moses, or the the book of Exodus, looking at the life of Moses, and uh, man, Moses is a fascinating character. I was talking with my mom on the phone earlier this week, uh, actually just yesterday, and we were talking about, uh, whenever I talk to my mom, we, we eventually get on to the subject of faith, uh, faith in Christ, she's a believer, and, um, and we were talking about the sermon series, and she said when she first became a Christian and, and read the Bible, Moses was, was a character that really stood out to her because of his friendship with God, that there seemed to be this, this relationship that he had with God that was, that was unusual. Um, and I, I related to that. But she said something, since it's Mother's Day, I'm going to talk about her for just a second. Um, she said something uh, about her faith in Christ, and she said, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian because I believe in every fiber of my being that it's true, that Christianity is true. And then she said something that was classic Susan Ramsey. Uh, and also just was so simple in how profound it was. And she said, I'll never understand why people put their faith in things they know they made up. <laughs> and I think that just stands on its own two legs. So, yay, Mom. Um, <laughs> okay, so, Moses. There was a 16th, no, eight, how do you do it? 16th century would be what, the 1500s? Is that, how, how's that work? Okay. 
So this would be in 18th century, so in the 1700s, there was a, there was a Protestant reformer missionary in Germany named Nicholas Zinzendorf, and he, and he wrote this statement about ministry and, and missions, and, and uh, this was right, at, right when the Protestant Reformation was happening, and he said this, um, and I think this speaks really well to a culture of people who, are, who uh, really want to make a mark with our lives. He said this, remember, you must never use your position to lord it over the heathen. They talked that way back then about Christians and non-Christians were heathens. Um, But he said this, instead you must humble yourself and earn their respect through your own quiet faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. The missionary must seek nothing for himself, no seat of honor or hope of fame. And then he ended it this way, you must be content to proclaim the gospel, to suffer, to die, and to be forgotten. Are you willing to faithfully serve the Lord with your life if it means that you will labor in obscurity and then die and then be forgotten? Is that okay? Because the odds are very good that that's exactly what's going to happen. Um, When you think about the people who are involved in the legacies of faith, of, 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 you know, all of the, the famous people that you might know who sort of represent public Christianity, the people who were involved in shaping the, the faith of Billy Graham or C.S. Lewis or people like this, um, m- most of those influential people in their lives, we don't know their names, we don't celebrate them. They did what they came to do, they did what they were given to do, and they did it faithfully. And the Lord remembers, but history does not. That's the path that most of us are on. In fact, I would wager probably all of us in this room are going to, that's going to be our story. Um, you know, Moses, is, is that a downer? <laughs> are we starting off on a, uh, so you got to labor, you got to suffer, you got to die, and then you're going to be forgotten. Praise the Lord. Um, Mo, Moses, he's a household name, right? So it's like, well, yeah, but Moses, okay, but Moses is an outlier, but there was a time when it surely must, when he surely must have wondered if his life was going to come to something like this, if it would amount to anything at all. And that's what today's text is all about, and so we're going to get into that. So what happens in this passage is there's a day where Moses goes out, and what he goes out from is he goes out from Pharaoh's palace. So Moses goes out from Pharaoh's palace where he lived to observe the conditions of his people. And he sees an Egyptian slave master who is beating one of the Hebrews. And in Acts chapter 7, we learn a lot about this because Stephen, in his speech, as he's about to be stoned to death, talks about this. He talks about what happened here with Moses. And one of the things that Stephen notes in Acts 7.23 is he says, when Moses struck down the Egyptian, he was 40 years old. So I don't know what your timeline is when you think about Moses being in Pharaoh's court and how, how much time elapsed. If you're maybe thinking he's, maybe he's 18, 20, uh, maybe this is early, you know, he's stepping into adulthood. He's 40 when this happens. And he stri- strikes down this Egyptian and he kills him. And on its face, you would say, oh, it appears to be that he is doing something that his fellow Hebrews would consider to be admirable. And then Stephen makes the observation in Acts 7.25. 
He says, Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation when he did this and that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand that. In other words, that's not what they took from what they saw Moses doing. Moses saw himself intervening for the good of his people. They saw him, he saw himself as somebody who was defending the vulnerable, but Soon after he does this, he sees two Hebrew men who are fighting with each other, and they're in a bit of a fist fight, and he, he inserts himself again into their fight, thinking that he's, once again, showing up, setting things straight, calming things down, he's, he's doing something good, and the man in the wrong turns to him, and he says, are you going to kill me too, like you did the Egyptian? What went wrong? You ever wonder about that? What, why did the Hebrew men respond to him with contempt? Because here, here's a fully grown man, 40, with unlimited potential. He has unlimited power really to help. Why did the Hebrew people respond to him with contempt? Let me give you three reasons why. The first is... If the Hebrews grew up hearing that one of their own had infiltrated Herod's, or Herod, Pharaoh's palace, if they knew, if, there, if it was the lore, and, and it would have been, because this was a culture that uh, was a storytelling culture, if they knew that one of their own was in Pharaoh's palace, then it would make sense that they were waiting for him to make a move to help to make their lives better. And now he's 40, and nothing's really happened. He's come from the comfort of Pharaoh's palace. He looks like an Egyptian now. He dresses as an Egyptian. He's done up like an Egyptian. And he comes from Pharaoh's palace to see their embittered servitude. And they're looking at him like, what is taking you so long? Has any progress been made? The second thing is that when Moses kills the Egyptian slave for mis mistreating a Hebrew, Pharaoh is only going to see this one way. And he's going to see this as a Hebrew killing an Egyptian. And so in effect, what Moses did to that Egyptian would set the Hebrew people back 40 years in any progress that they might have been trying to make to have things go better for themselves. It would have been set back to the beginning of his time in Pharaoh's court, which was a time where Pharaoh was telling his slave masters, make their lives miserable. So in striking the Egyptian, he wasn't helping the cause at all. In fact, he was making it even more fragile. But then third, and perhaps most in the forefront of their minds, is Moses is behaving like an Egyptian slave master. When Moses sees the Egyptian slave master beating the Hebrew, he responds like an Egyptian slave master. He beats him and he kills him and he does it with impunity and he does it with power. And so Alec Moyer, who, who's one of the commentators on Exodus that I've been reading here, he says this, he says, Moses found himself in the dilemma that all through history, has beset the would-be liberator. As soon as he tries to free people by force, he begins to antagonize 
those he wants to help. They very rightly and logically round on him and say, we've seen enough killing. Why should we trust another killer? And then when Pharaoh does learn what Moses had done, he sets out to kill him. It's exactly like they thought it was going to go, that he's going to kill him. And just like that, any hope that Moses may have held on to, that he would be able to play a role in delivering his own people from their misery by infiltrating the house of Pharaoh just goes out the window. What a blow. It's just lost. Any sense of purpose he might have felt based on his position in Egypt is just stripped away. And he found out, he found himself not only shut out of Pharaoh's palace, but by his own people too. In the words of our vernacular, he was canceled. And now Egypt was more of a danger to him now than when he was an infant in the basket in the river. He's in more danger now than he ever had been. And so he flees to Midian, which is present-day Saudi Arabia. It's on the east bank of the Red Sea's Gulf of Aqaba. For those who want to know the geography, he goes across the Sinai Peninsula over into Saudi Arabia, and that's where he is, among the Midianites. So Moses is there in Midian. Um, an illustration. I love being a pastor. I'm a pastor through and through. I am most comfortable when I am doing what I'm doing right now, when I'm sitting across the table from, from you getting a cup of coffee. I was joking with Joe Gilder this morning that I have a job where I get to set up chairs and I get to preach a sermon, and it just makes me so happy. <laughs> it's, a rare, it's a rare job that I get to do, and I love it. I absolutely love it. I've been reading stories, sadly, lately of, of pastors who are leaving ministry, uh, that after navigating COVID-19 in particular, there's, there's just kind of this, this, no pun intended, this exodus of pastors leaving uh, their, their churches and their calling. And that thought has never crossed my mind, but I will say that navigating COVID-19 has been the most challenging season of ministry that I've experienced in about 20 years of, of being in, in pastoral ministry. Um, because it's, it's impossible, right? This is a season where it's impossible to please everybody. It can't be done. Uh, and not only can it not be done, but it's really hard to know what to do at any given stage. How do you balance ministering to the physical and the emotional and the relational and the spiritual needs of a congregation? And for pastors who are kind of doing this by themselves, um, maybe without infrastructure like we've had, maybe, maybe it's been difficult to figure out even how to live stream, and so they had a stretch of months where they just weren't with their people at all. Uh, it can be really lonely, and there can be this chasm that a pastor can feel uh, between him and his, and his flock, and sometimes that chasm is even widened more when they feel like they need that distance in order to just be safe. And so I'm, I'm grateful for the encouragement and for the support and the graciousness of this church um, that this church has extended to myself and to our team uh, as we've tried our best before God to navigate this season. Um, and it's made all the difference, so thank you for that. Uh, but the reason I'm, I'm saying this is there was a time when I stepped away from full-time pastoral ministry for a season. 
And I, I love how, and it wasn't that long ago, and I love how the Lord cared for my family during that season. He gave us great friends. He gave us a church to be a part of. He gave me great work, a work that I loved to be able to do. But I'm a pastor. Through and through, I'm a pastor. And so I think about what it must be like to step away from full-time ministry. And I think it's got to be hard. It's, it's got to be excruciating. Like it would be for anybody leaving a vocation that you feel called to. Where there's a calling and a, and a rhythm of life that kind of goes with it. Um, and, you, and you leave that to find something new, something different. And perhaps you, you have something in your life that's, that's like that. For me, I think about that when it comes to being a pastor, but maybe you have something like that in your life where there's this, this path that you thought would be your path, your calling, your dream, only to come to a point where it just goes away. And you have to step away from that thing and you have to begin all over again. Have you been there? Because that's what Moses has to do right now. That's what he has to do. After 40 years in Pharaoh's house, he is now suddenly a fugitive refugee in Midian. He's a man with nothing. It can be so easy to come to a point where we feel like all is lost. Like everything that we've been trying to build or hoping that we would see come to pass just kind of vanishes before our eyes. Is that what happened to Moses? Is it really that everything just vanished? That everything that could have happened in his life now is just an impossibility? After he leaves Pharaoh, after he leaves Egypt, he flees. He goes to Midian, and he's sitting by a well, and some women come to drink, and the shepherds near the well chase them away. And so for the third time in this passage, Moses rolls up his sleeves and walks over to intervene. He does this. He goes to intervene in somebody else's struggle. That trait, by the way, is a trait that would prove really useful for God's calling in his life. That trait of intervening for the downtrodden. Only this time when he does it, he gets a very different outcome then he was dressed as a prince of Egypt. This time, the people he helps, they recognize him as a man with nothing. And they take pity on him. And they bring him in. They help him. He's trying to help them, but they end up helping him. Don't you see? God is helping him. Why? Because Moses has so much to learn he has so much to learn for what God has set him up for, humility included. Because it turns out, for Moses to be able to do what God has called him to do, the thing he doesn't need is power and influence as a prince in Egypt. In fact, that'll have really no use for him at all when you get right down to it. So what did he lose what did he lose when he became this fugitive refugee? He lost status. He lost position. He lost wealth. He lost a measure of fame. And he became what he says when he talks about naming his son. He became an alien in a foreign land. 
But what did he gain? He gained a family that took him in. He gained a wife, Zipporah. He had children. And he also gained, Stephen helps us again with this in Acts 7, he gained another 40 years to mature in obscurity. Before Midian, he had this internal sense of justice, but it really lacked the maturity to know how to wield it, and so he just killed a guy. But in Midian, what he finds there is he finds God. This is where the burning bush happens. He finds God here. And he finds him, and only then is he really ready for what God has called him to. What makes the Midianites so interesting about this is, is who they really were as a people. Because they had more of what Moses needed than Egypt did. The Midianites were nomads. They were hurting, uh, hurting people. They wandered. And so they wandered around Sinai and Canaan, the promised land. And they worshipped God freely. Unlike Moses' experience in Egypt, another commentator, Tim Chester, said this, in leaving the only home he has ever known, Egypt, Moses has come home. Who's he come home to? He's come home to a God-fearing people, and he's come home to a wandering people. And it was there that Moses would have to come to terms with who he really was. Though he might have spent his whole life imagining himself as a son of Egypt and there being value and inherent intrinsic value in that for himself. In reality, he's a sojourner in this world. And guess what? So are you and so am I. We spend a lot of our energy and a lot of our time trying to nail things to the floor, don't we? And God just doesn't seem interested in that. Moses had to learn how to hold on to the impermanent things of this world very loosely. He had to learn how to wander. He had to learn how to seek the face of God apart from career success and apart from positional strength, apart from the respect of his countrymen. And he would need all of that. He had to be content to suffer and to die and to be forgotten. And God had to be enough for him. In our time, we face a lot of pressure to be amazing, right? You gotta be amazing. Anything short of that is not a life well lived. We need to have epic lives. We need to write better stories. And we need to achieve and then achieve and then achieve while we're nailing everything down to the floor. And it's a hollow experience. And we know it's a hollow experience. It's a hollow experience to chase the dream of being validated by the world because the world's just not interested in doing that. But in truth for the Christian, there's a way we're supposed to live where certain qualities mark our lives. We call them the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Sherry Drury, did I miss any? I think I got them all. Sherry teaches BSF, and she, she knows these things inside and out. When Moses killed the Egyptian, those qualities were just nowhere to be found. And you know what we do? We metaphorically kill Egyptians too. We see something that just rubs us the wrong way and we try to just burn it to the ground. We eviscerate people on the, quote, other side of a public debate through belittling words or postures of contempt. We delight in ridicule. We can so easily burst into a room, whether it's actual an actual room or a social media room, as though we have all the answers and nothing to learn. And we can take our opponent down, feeling like we're doing the Lord's work. But like Moses wrongly assumed when he killed the Egyptian, you can spend yourself thinking your efforts should cause the world to appreciate you, only to find that what it does instead is it just yawns. So what do you do then? May God give us the courage to resonate with Moses, who when he gets to Midian, has a wife and a son, he looks at his disassembled life and he says, I'm a sojourner in this world. I was a sojourner in Egypt. I'm a sojourner here too. And may that lead us to the more important question, what am I really looking for? Here's the hope that the book of Exodus extends. God offers us himself. He offers us himself. That hunger to know we're enough, to find acceptance, to belong, it's ultimately fed by the one who created us according to his abounding love, called us to himself by the atoning sacrifice of Christ and promises us that he loves us with an everlasting love. And our hunger to be useful, that resides with him too. So when you no longer need to prove your worthiness, Imagine what God might do through you. Glorious things. Look at what he did through Moses. And maybe you'll even be remembered by this world. But the odds are you won't be. The odds are you'll eventually be forgotten. But what does that have to do with anything? Right? What does that have to do with anything if God is at work in you and through you now? His call on your life is not to the stuff you'll do. Not ultimately. His call on your life ultimately is to himself. And that's enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that when we look in the pages of scripture at the stories of the people that you use to advance your covenant promises throughout the world, 
that we are, with the exception of your son, never dealing in complete, noble, ethical people. But we're dealing with people who have trouble in their wake, people who have decisions that they've made, appetites they've indulged, that have had devastating consequences in the lives of other people. We thank you for that, even though there's so much pain in that, that would have been very real, because it reminds us that you are not looking for perfect people to work through. You don't need us to do anything in order for you to accomplish your will perfectly, but you, you invite us into your process, and you call us to be a part of it, and you delight to use us. You're a God of means, and you use the means of the church and of your people. You call us to be your witnesses in the world. It's your great commission for us to be your witnesses in the world, and you give us that commission knowing what we're made of and knowing our duplicity of heart, of knowing how we metaphorically kill Egyptians with our words and our thoughts and our actions, that we, 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 we try to just villainize the other side and, and exalt ourselves and our positions uh, when there's so much we don't know and so much humility we need. And so, Lord, we thank you for being a God who works powerfully and beautifully and with eternal significance and consequence through people like us. And uh, Lord, we ask that you would continue to do that. And as you do, as you work through us, that you would make us to be people who would be content, and not only content, but deeply satisfied to know that even if this world forgets us, you know us and you love us. And more than that, you made us to know you and that our hearts are made for that. Thank you that your call on our lives is not ultimately to the stuff we do, but is to yourself. And may that be enough for us. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.